Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For it is made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? For worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a sphere, and they are utterly consumed with fire. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, as we're thinking about Psalm or Second Samuel 23 uh, that was just read, I, I was really um, uh, encouraged to think a lot about the nature of our lives. And, and I'm wondering about you and how often you take time to really sit down and think about where you stand with God, where you stand with, with others, uh, how often you sit to think about the trajectory that your life is taking, uh, how often you sit to think about the decisions that you've made and, and where those decisions are taking you and how they're impacting others. Uh, there's a great quote by Charles Spurgeon where he essentially says that, uh, you know, so often we think about our checkbooks and take account of them, sometimes many times a day. But how often do we actually take time to consider our souls and how much more important are they? Now, if you're wondering what a checkbook is, uh, think about online banking. It's sort of like what they used to do. They had it like written down in a book. But how often do you check your online banking a day, just to see where you stand financially, if there are any uh, credits or debits that have hit that you weren't expecting. We should be doing the same kind of thing with our souls, and I think that the coronavirus has given us a, a great opportunity to have time, unique time, to think about our lives. Maybe you've been doing some of that, and it's given us plenty of time to think about life, death, and eternity, but this week, as I was thinking about uh, this sermon, I was reminded actually also of a song by Johnny Cash. It was a cover that he did for Nine Inch Nails. Uh, Trent Reznor wrote the original song as a young man about how he had uh, really hurt himself, his life, and others uh, as he was becoming uh, famous and, and addicted to all kinds of things, drugs and other things. And so the, the song took a certain flavor with him, but later Johnny Cash decided to cover it, uh, this song entitled Hurt, and, and it took on a different feel when he sang it because he was singing it just months before he was dying, as his energy was leaving his body. And as he sang it, he sang words like these. This guy that, that sold over 90 million records, had incredible fame, who spent so much of his life enslaved to celebrity, drugs, alcohol, and adultery before he came to Christ. He had all of these experiences of hurting people, and he sang this, what have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end, and you could have it all, my empire of dirt. I will let you down, I will make you hurt. And as you heard him sing those words, you could hear the words of a man who was singing as one who was looking back over his life, and he was evaluating how he had lived and what he had done. And he said, it wasn't good, and I would give it all away if I could do it again in a different way. This song conjures a sense of this dying man looking at his failures, at his regrets, 
at his life as he faces death, and, and it's just filled with hurt. Well, this morning, we're back in our series on the life of David, and we're in 2 Samuel 23, where we find the last words of David, the, the great Messiah, the, the Spirit-anointed King. And, and he will speak more words in 2 Samuel and 1 King, but these words that we're going to look at are like David's last will and testimony. It's his, his words that he is speaking that give shape and sort of definition to the way that he looks at both his past, his present, and then his future. The context is really critical here. You've been following along the life of David. See, David looks like an absolute superhero all the way from 1 Samuel 16 all the way to when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 10. It seems like David can do no wrong. Sometimes he almost does wrong, but then he pulls back and then he does the right thing. You'll remember that when he was younger in his younger years, he looks like the man that God had promised, the king that he had been promising. You'll remember last week, uh, or two weeks ago, we went through chapter 22, which was written, I believe, during those heroic episodes of David. And God delivered him from Saul, and likely it was written this, this chapter 22, somewhere around the, the time of 2 Samuel 7, where God had made that covenant with David. But the author tells us that 2 Samuel 23 was written at another time. The last days of David. And much has happened since 2 Samuel 7, hasn't it? In fact, if you look from 2 Samuel 11 to 2 Samuel 20, what you find is what looks to be a dumpster fire of a life, right? I mean, if you follow the sequence of events, he sins in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, and everything from then on up to chapter 20 is the consequences of those sins of David being played out in real time. See, these words are written after the long catalog of David's sins and failures and injustice and the collateral damage of those events. Yet, David's last words, as you read these, did you notice as you were listening that these sound like words of hope, not hurt? How could it be that a man who's experienced the kind of pain that he's experienced from chapters 11 to 20 could come back with his last words that will memorialize his life and say, I am a man of hope? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Aren't you glad that it didn't start off, or it's not going to end like it started off? See, our big idea this morning is this, that a Messiah greater than David gives broken people hope as they stare death in the face. It's this again. You want to write this down if you're taking notes. A Messiah greater than David gives hope to broken people as they stare death in the face. Before we get started, let me pray and ask for God's help. Will you pray with me? Well, this morning as we come before you, we are looking and gazing into your word. And Father, we know that it, you will tell us this morning through your word yet again that you have spoken by your spirit and that you still are speaking to us through David. And so, Father, this morning we ask that our hearts would be ready to hear from you. Father, we need desperately to hear the voice of the living God. And so God, we pray that you would speak and that you would breathe life into us, fresh life into our lungs, that you would uh, help us as we are starving to hear from you, God. We pray that you would, as your word seeps in, transform and shape us and change us, that we might look more like what you have created us to look like. Would help us to glorify you, even as we listen. 
In your name we do pray. Amen. Well, here's the first thing we see in verses 1 to 3. We see that King David prophesies. King David prophesies. Now, the author tells us these are the last words of David, and then he begins with a brief description of the meteoric rise of King David. Uh, You'll remember as we've been going through his life that God raised him up. He was a shepherd in the field, almost forgotten about. And yet, what we find throughout his life is that God raised him up, and he became the great hero of Israel that they sang about. Uh, You'll see this in in verse 1. Look at what verse 1 says again. It says this. It says, now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, notice first that he covers that meteoric rise of David from shepherd to king. Now, we've seen that God rejected King Saul for disobedience. That happened in 1 Samuel 15. And God chose the, le- the least likely son from a no-account family as his spirit-anointed king to save Israel from their enemies. Now, God raised his king up and placed him on his throne in Zion. God exalted and chose his king. And God promised, you'll remember, that he would give Abraham a great king from his line. Uh, we remember that in, back in Genesis chapters 12 and on. And then you remember later in Genesis 49 that uh, Abraham's son Isaac had a son Jacob whom God promised he would bring about a son from his line, a great king who would come through Judah, one of his sons. Of course, Jacob became Israel. His name was changed, and and he gave birth to the 12 sons who represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And and the final, and what's interesting is, is that though Jacob was great and Abraham were great, they promised someone greater that was to come. And we find here in these verses that David is the anointed of the God of Jacob. He is that son they had been looking forward to. See, God's promises to Jacob will focus on David's line. And the final line here in these verses, notice what it calls David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. I love the way that that's written, but it could mean different things. And people have translated it different ways. I've seen some say that this means that David is a sweet man from Israel who wrote the Psalms. Others have said uh, David is the sweet man about whom Israel wrote their songs. And even the word sweet could mean different things. It could speak of the fact that David is sweet from the perspective of God or from the perspective of Israel. Well, I think that as we look at this, that that both of those obviously are true. David was loved by God. He was loved by Israel. But I think that it, it could be that these verses are trying to communicate that David is the hero about whom Israel sang. It was sweet for them to speak about David. See this word that is used for sweet here about David. David uses it too. He uses it in 2 Samuel chapter 1 when he is lamenting the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. And you'll remember there that he talked about them being mighty warriors. They are given this epic scene of being almost unbeatable until they are beaten. And in those verses he calls them lovely. The same word for sweet. 
And so David is singing about the greatness of Saul and Jonathan at their deaths. I believe that David is the one whom Israel loved to sing about. And you'll remember this in 1 Samuel 18, 7. You remember how the women loved to sing, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. This was the great hero that they had been waiting for and that they were getting to experience in real time. And Israel loved to sing about King David because he was pleasant like sugar on their tongues when they sang of him. See, God's favor worked out into blessings upon them through David. They loved to sing about the salvation and justice that God had brought through this king. Christian brothers and sisters, uh, I'm just going to make a quick pivot here we have a better king to love and to sing to, don't we? I mean, if, if they sang about how David saved them from physical enemies, a man who was about to die and has some last words, then how much more should we sing about the king who defeated sin, death, and the, and the devil to draw us near to him? I don't know about you and, and you who are live streaming right now, but my hope is that it is making you sick not being able to be with the people of God and sing with them. Now, we are sick that you can't be here. We understand that. But my hope is that you have not lost that sense of longing to hear the voices of the people of God singing to Christ. We are his body. He is our head. He deserves to be sung about. And I would say that when we sing, one of the jobs of preaching and teaching is to whet your appetites to the realities of the beauty and the greatness and the worth and the renown of God's King Jesus so that you want to sing about it as you go. So brothers and sisters, I hope that when you come, you come ready to get excited to sing to God. And I would say that if you are not excited to sing to God, brothers and sisters, it might not be a problem with the music. It could be a problem with the heart. And so we need to be aware that our hearts ought to to love to sing about Jesus. And it's not about the tune, it's about the majesty of the one that we sing about. I could go on about this, but have you ever been in like one of these situations where everybody starts to sing a cappella? And at first it's kind of funky because like nobody really can sing that great without the, the, the music and you realize, hey, we sound better with guitars. But then you start singing and you hear somebody singing with all their heart, like they can't even tell that they can't hit a note, but you just hear the love of Jesus and all of a sudden you're just excited to sing because that person who can't carry a note loves Jesus so much and he doesn't know how we're looking at him. Be that guy. But notice here that David's last words were not David's words. Did you catch that? Notice they were an oracle. Now, usually the offices of prophet, priest, and king are are separate. Those are major offices in the Old Testament that we read about. But we've seen David so far act, try to act as a a priest, right, in certain circumstances. And we've, we've here seen him speaking as a prophet. The commentator Robert Bergen says the Hebrew for oracle here signals a special speech act category reserved for prophetic utterances of unusual significance. See, the oracle comes with a thus saith the Lord kind of authority. I love that that line from the King James Version. It's not in your ESV. But the the, the KJV everywhere says thus saith the Lord. The same language is used in Numbers 24. If you look at Numbers 24, you'll you'll notice in verses 3 to 4 that this oracle of Balaam explains what's happening as he gives the oracle. It says this in verses 3 to 4 of Numbers 24. It says, 
the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. And catch what Balaam sees in Numbers 24, 14, whenever he has this oracle. It says that he sees a future and a hope. He says, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. See, Balaam spoke of a coming king. Jacob himself prophesied that that king would come from Judah in Genesis 49.10. And and we are told that that king, the nations would obey him. See, David is a spirit-anointed king, that Messiah that the prophets were prophesying about. But here we see the Messiah that they'd been looking forward and preparing for is here preparing to die, and God's great Messiah prophesies in that moment. Don't miss this. David's last words were not David's last words. David speaks the very words of God. Now, verses 2 to 3a, they, they explain prophecy well from David. Notice what it says. David says, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is, is on my tongue, and the God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel He has said to me. Now the Spirit speaks of God's presence. That God's presence was with David. And the rock speaks of God's power to protect and save. You'll remember that from chapter 22. See, Israel's Savior, God, is is present with his king, speaking to his people. Now there are two things that stand out here. Notice that God speaks through David. And God speaks to David. Both of those are said in these verses. In verse 2, God speaks to his people in an ongoing way through David. And in verse 3, God also speaks to David. Now the Spirit of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, he is speaking this message to David and through David, and it has massive future implications for the people of God. Now here are a couple quick important implications. If If you're trying to understand the nature of the Bible. Maybe you're even wondering why I'm preaching from a Bible. Kind of a unique thing for a lot of churches these days to preach from a Bible. Why do we do that? Well, if you are new to Christianity, this is a great place, I think, just to pull over the bus and explain why we preach from the Bible. It's because the Bible is not a book like other books. It's not like Plato's Republic. It's not like J.K. Rowling's, you know, uh, Harry Potter. They don't read like that. The, the, The Bible is unique because Christians believe this 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 book, these words, they are to God's people. And that when it comes, it comes with God's personal presence and power. God is with his people in his word. And and now we found some ancient copies of Psalms. When we found those those Qumran scrolls, uh, scrolls. And we found that 2 Samuel 23 was actually with some of those scrolls. And I believe it was because they wanted us to read this very line before we read the Psalms to understand that the Psalms are God speaking to God's people through the prophet David, who's also king. Now, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 also tells us that it's not just the words of David, but all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, reproof, 
correction, and the training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every single good work. Is there something God's called you to do that's not in his word? No. It is thoroughly sufficient to show you how to please God. It is thoroughly sufficient to show you how to live in this life. It has wisdom to direct you and to how to honor God in the decisions that you are making in this life and the life that is to come. It is the only hope that we have, words from God about how to be prepared when Jesus comes back or when you die and go to be with him. If you want good last words, then you need God's good word. See, God's word through David, it speaks to us. And the Bible is the only book that I have ever found that reads you when you read it. When you are reading God's word, that word, you, you ought to sense that it is reading you back, that it is seeping to your heart and soul, that you are seeing something about God that you didn't see before, that you're seeing something about yourself that you didn't know before, that you're seeing some things that need to change, that you see some promises that are yet to come. So if you want hope in the midst of this pandemic, let me just encourage you to find a copy of God's Word and to read it spiritually. Now, I could go all day on this, but let me just give you like five quick things about reading the Bible spiritually. Pray before you read the Word of God that He would give you eyes to see and ears to, to hear from God. Pray second and ask that God's Word would search you and know you. And ask that He would would help you to see if there's any unclean way in you. And if there is, that he would lead you away from it into the way of everlasting life. Confess as you're reading things that come to light. Like, I don't know how you're reading your Bible. I get all kinds of encouragement. I also get all kinds of conviction. Because I realize that I am a broken human who doesn't work the way that he's supposed to. And some of that's just because, like, I'm not perfect. And other times it's because, like, I actually like sin in ways that I shouldn't. And I need to be convicted by the Word of God. And when you read your Bible, you shouldn't expect every morning to have a verse that you want to plaster on your wall as, like, a happy thought. It should be something that comes in and actually brings you to your knees and before your face, before your holy and righteous God. But it should encourage you, too. Fourth, find something as you read through the Scriptures, a, a phrase or a verse that strikes you. Memorize it and say it throughout the day. And then fifth, share it with somebody. Hey, I was reading the Word of God today, and I'm not trying to like show off or anything, but I was just encouraged by this. Maybe it would encourage you. You know how often I've gone through my, my quiet time in the Word in, in a day? And later that day, there's some situation that I was like, man, God was like just filling my quiver to get ready for what was coming at me, and I didn't even know it. Like, be ready. Be ready to use the word that God's given you that very day. And if you're looking for a way to get into reading the Bible, there are a lot of different ways that you can do it. Uh, you can go to our website. We have really good resources like M. Chain's uh, reading plan. But, but don't miss this. Jesus' sheep love the voice of Christ in the Scriptures, both the New Testament and the Old Testament. They love it. Second, second application real quick. Take note that the Spirit of the Lord continuously speaks through the word of David to us. He, he is still speaking to his people through the words, the ancient words that he gave to David. In other words, this word that we read here, it's a word that would in one way be to David as he faced his last days. That's true. 
This was for David. But, but also, second, it would be for the future kings from David's line in particular and kings in general. And third, it would also be a message of hope for Israel concerning a greater Messiah that was to come. When they had a, a bad Messiah, a bad king, they could know that a great Messiah was yet to come. And fourth, it brings comfort to Christians who can relate to that longing of God's greater Messiah coming again to set things right. But catch what God's Word says through David in verses 3 to 4. Here's what he says. He says, just rulers who fear God are life-giving. Just rulers, just kings who fear God, they're life-giving. Now, the text says that when one rules uh, justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. See, the text says that when one rules justly over Adam, literally Adam in the Hebrew, or, or humanity, when, when this king is ruling over humanity. Now, ruling is language of kingship. That's what that word is, is used for. And up to 2 Samuel 8, it's interesting, justice characterized David's reign. You'll remember that. You remember in 2 Samuel 8.15 what he says? Okay, characterizing his reign, it says that David reigned over all of Israel. And David, he administered justice and equity to all his people, to everyone. It was a, a just, equitable king. See, David did not seek selfish gain. He didn't kill Saul when he had the opportunity to for fear of laying hand on the Lord's anointed. He, he did not show favoritism to the rich or to the poor. His punishments, they always met the crimes. They were fair. And the fear of God gave shape to David's just rule. Now, this idea of fear of God and just rule, that they meet at the law of God in Deuteronomy. Now, we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 17, or yeah, 17, 18 to 20, where we are told the king of Israel his job was, when he became king, to actually make a copy of the law for himself. He would, he would actually have to, you know, it wasn't like cut, copy, and paste, right? Like he had to write it out by hand. And if he messed it up, the scribes would say, you got to go back and fix that, king. Like, don't kill me, but you got to fix that. And, and he would, after he made this copy for himself, he was supposed to read from it daily and memorize it and put it on his heart. And he explains, it's, explains this in Deuteronomy 17. You do this every day of your life. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law. And these statutes and doing them. That his heart might not be lifted up above his brothers. And that he might not turn aside from the commandments either to the right hand or to the left, so that he might continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Did you catch that? Justice in the Bible is tied to God's law. Justice is not an abstract concept. It is not a culturally sort of uh, developed concept. 
Justice is in accordance with the very words of God. And here he says that even God's great king needed to meditate on God's law to make him humble before his brothers and humble before his God. Justice is theological before it's practical or sociological. It is something that is tied to the nature of who God is and who we are. And what we find here is, is if the Messiah needs God's word every day, don't you think that you do too? I mean, don't you, don't you, don't, don't I, don't we need God's word? Just rulers need rules too. See, David's job was to bring justice according to God's will to God's people, such that the voice of God in heaven, what a beautiful thought, that that voice from heaven speaking down to man would create a culture of people here on earth so that literally God is saying, I want it to be on earth as it is in heaven. Of course, we know that we're broken in such a way that that doesn't work without extreme help from God. But when you hear words like justice and the fear of God, I'm wondering what kind of imaginations you have of that place that would be created by that. Think about it. If somebody said, hey, I want you to have a culture that is determined by the fear of God and by justice. What are your thoughts? Is it kind of like that feeling whenever you see like blue lights in the back and you're wondering, did I do anything? Do you think that that sounds like a, a kind of unhappy type of place? Like maybe when you think about that kind of culture, you're thinking to yourself like, man, that sounds like a sad place where everyone has to eat oatmeal every morning without butter or cinnamon. A place where there's no dancing or music. A place where there's no art. Where everything is in black and white. It's a sad place, cold and dark. It's miserable. Maybe it sounds like Mr. Tumnus describing Narnia in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when he says this is a place that is always winter but never Christmas. See, that's not the image that, that God speaks to us through King David, though. In fact, the fact that we get those kind of images in our mind tells us how broken we are to how good God is. See, he, he uses three lines in these verses that are parallel to describe this place. And, and these are the images that should come to our minds. He highlights that good kings who fear God and are just, they are life-giving. Here's what it says. They are bright like the sun blazing forth on a cloudy or cloudless morning, bringing light to darkness and giving life after the rain, causing the grass to, to shoot up with new life from the earth. It's like a garden springing to life, a, a desert that becomes an oasis, a place that was dry that all of a sudden it has a lake that has clear water that you can swim in and drink. That's the image that we are called to get here from God. I want you to know that this is a good place. See, this seems to say that good leadership that is just in God-fearing is like the rising of the radiant sun and the rain causing freshly watered grass to spring forth from the ground and new life, fertility, blessing, fruit. See, good rulers usher in new morning mercy that causes the birds to sing. You, you ever had that kind of morning? 
I just sold my house, but we had, we had a vineyard like right outside our window, like grapes. I didn't plant them. I can't even believe they stayed alive. But I would love to hear the birds coming and singing in the morning. It's a good morning. We got your grapes. You're not getting them. And then I'd hear a doom. And I'd say, that's the justice of the Lord. Bird would hit the glass. Didn't see it. Did find some dead birds outside our window. And then I looked at my, my grapes that were all gone. And I thought, justice of the Lord. This is a picture of a new creation. But don't miss this. The, the fear of God and just leadership will lead to the flourishing of those that are under you. Now, I know that, that the world's broken, but this is, a general, this is generally true. Presidents, bosses, police, husbands, parents, kindergarten teachers. See, th this world is broken and things don't always work as they should, but, but our aim should be that any God, any place that God puts us in, wherever it is, politics or or whether we are a janitor, whatever it is that God has called us to, that, that that area of care would not merely survive our leadership, but that it would thrive under it. See, God calls us to be vocationally different from the world. As, as bosses, if you have employees, you should be thinking to yourself, how does a Christian boss look different than a boss that's not a Christian? If you're a police officer, it should be the fear of God that should help and educate you as to how you treat others. It should shape our vocation. School teachers should seek the flourishing of students who don't want to grow. Now, there's lots of wisdom decisions and discernment decisions in that, but our hearts should be flourishing of others. So our leadership as Christians ought to be God-fearing and just. But this message here in these verses, this message is true for all wise leaders but it is to kings specifically. It is to the kings of, of God's people. And take note of how the focus shifts specifically there in verse 5. Did you see there third? David's last words focus on God's everlasting covenant with him. David's last words, they are focused on God's everlasting covenant with him. Here's what's fascinating. David's attention quickly turns from those general truths about ideal kings to specific promises made to David's house, his dynasty. And he asks this question in verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Now the timing of, of David's question here I find fascinating if you've been tracking the story of David's life it's fascinating that this would be placed at the end of his life after all that has happened in fact others have looked at this commentators interpreters new and old and some have taken this as a, an actual real question that David is doubting in his last days that he is with God in this way. And, and others have taken it to see it as a statement that David's house does not stand so with God. But where does David's house stand with God? You'll remember the, the first half of David's rule was characterized by justice. But 2 Samuel 11 to 20, that immediately precede this chapter, they look like the dumpster fire season of David's life. Samuel's author strategically placed this oracle 
after David committing adultery with Bathsheba. After he murdered her husband Uriah to cover it up. After, as a consequence, he lost a child. After, as a consequence, Amnon, his son, assaulted Tamar, his daughter. After his son Absalom killed Amnon for it. After the bloody rebellions of Absalom and Sheba that disrupted the whole nation. And all of this could be traced back to the injustice of King David. And so you're thinking, but you said that just kings who fear God lead to the flourishing of his people. And I'm sure David has to, in some sense, have those realities in his mind. Yet here, David brings his house or dynasty to the forefront of God's plan for a king for humanity, saying, for does not my house stand so with God? In other words, you've been generally talking about good kings. What about the promise that you made to my house? You remember that? Lots happened since then. See, when David looks back on his life, he could be singing about how he hurt himself and others like Johnny Cash, but he's singing, I believe here, about hope. Hope in God. Hope in God's everlasting covenant. Back from 2 Samuel 7. You remember? David is here hoping in the promises that God made there. See, God promised him an offspring with an eternal throne over the kingdom of God who would rule the nations. That's a high, far-reaching kind of promise for a guy that started out as a shepherd in the field. Of course, God calls his covenants with Noah and Abraham. And the new covenant is is called, they are all called everlasting covenants. I I don't see evidence of the, the Sinai covenant being called everlasting, but these are. And this is the only place David's covenant is called an everlasting covenant. Just here. And so much has happened since 2 Samuel 7 when that everlasting covenant was made that was not called an everlasting covenant back there. But David insists that God's covenant and those promises are still in play. That God has not turned his back on him, even though at times David turned his back on God. Now, he did not leave God, forsake God, abandon God, apostatize. But he sinned, and he sinned significantly. And here David says, my sin has not caused my God to abandon me. I've repented, and he's forgiven me. i faced consequences. Life has gotten dark, but God is still there. I love what... He says in Psalm 51.11, you'll remember there that after D- David sinned greatly in killing Uriah, he begged God, please don't remove your spirit from me like you did King Saul. Now do you remember what God promised in 2 Samuel 7 to David? I will not remove my spirit from your line when you sinned against me as I did with Saul. I will discipline you as a son. So David prayed, please, God, don't abandon me to my sin and my fallenness and this broken world. Don't leave me to it. You've made great and awesome promises. Promise that you're going to do it and you're not going to take it away. 
See, he saw his sin before a holy God, and he feared abandonment from God. But God kept his promise to never remove his spirit from him. And God would keep his promise to bless the nations with a king from David who would fulfill God's design for kingship in a greater way than David ever could. See, on David's last day, he's not hopeless over his many sins. Isn't that a day you want on your last day? Not to be hopeless in your brokenness, in your sin, and maybe the life that feels like a train wreck? No, he's hopeful over the faithfulness of God. Don't miss this. His life looked like a hot mess, absolute chaos for 10 chapters, but God's everlasting covenant was, did you see that? Ordered and secure. I don't think that from the mess of my life, I feel like God's covenant with me always feels ordered and secure. Right? You know what I'm saying? It feels out of order and very insecure. And yet at the end of his day, speaking from the Spirit of the Lord, David says, and yet you have always been ordered and secured even when I have not been. See, God would keep his promises to David's house. Death brings a lot of clarity. With death near, David sees, he really desires, he desires God's will above his own. He had 10 chapters of doing it his own way. Anybody here have maybe 10 chapters of doing it your own way? It looks kind of like that, right? It's like, well, you know, you can learn two ways. Like, I can tell you that it hurts to get knocked in the head, or you can just like, go and get knocked in the head and figure it out for yourself, right? Sin is never good for God's people. But the beauty of God is God never abandons his people. And God called David back to himself, and David came running. There were consequences, but God never left him. He never abandoned his promises. See, I think that's what he means when he asks, for he, will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? See, God has helped David all of his days, even when David needed help against David. And David knows his chief good is God's unfathomable promises. You know, we can chase culture and the promises that it gives us to find meaning in. And the greatest grace that God can give us is to leave us destitute in those things so that we'll see that Still, our greatest desire when thinking clearly at the end of our days is the unfathomable riches and inheritance that God has promised us. I would just rather learn from listening and trusting and obeying rather than getting hurt over it. Obviously, David is not speaking of sinful desire here when he says that God will cause to prosper all my help and all my desire, right? Do you remember another time that this word for desire was used in the story of the life of David? Chapter 11. Who did he desire? Bathsheba. Did he get what he wanted? Yes. Was it good for him? No. So clearly he's not saying that because God loves me, whatever my heart dreams up that is contrary to the clear will of God is okay and good. Obviously David is not saying, help me sin or, or help me sin without consequences. Please God. Anybody ever prayed that prayer? A sin. God, could you just like now not let me have consequences for that sin? What a mercy that he doesn't let us buy with those things. See, this speaks of David setting his hopes 
on the awe-inspiring promises of God. He knows his great good will be found in trusting and obeying God's word. His future, his future is incredibly bright when he lives for God. It is like the sun radiating on a cloudless morning, right? It is really bright light, like transfiguration light bright whenever you are following Jesus. So that's good leadership. That's the good king. We also know that David doesn't speak of sinful desire here because he warns future kings of the end of living like worthless men at the end. Did you see that in verses 6 to 7? Now you remember that God promised to discipline David as a son, but here he warns of unjust rulers who do not fear God. Notice this, fourth, worthless leaders are thorns to be burned. See, these verses add a wisdom comment on worthless men from from the Hebrew word Belial. We've seen this before, Belial. We've seen sons of Belial. It's used to describe idolaters in Deuteronomy 13, rapists and murderers in Judges 19, and the rebellious sons of Eli in 1 Samuel 2, that foolish Nabal back in chapter 1 Samuel 25. See, these men are bloodthirsty, these worthless men. They are out for self-seeking gain. They rule themselves. They don't fall and submit themselves to God's king. This likely is contrasting the just ruler that we read about in the previous verses with a, a worthless ruler, but it is also true for all worthless people. David says in verses 6 to 7 these things about the, the, birthless, the worthless men. He says this, But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So while the end of just leadership is a new creation, springing up with life, with flourishing green grass-like growth. The end of worthlessness and worthless men is to become like thorns, kind of reminiscent of the, the curse type language, which can't be touched by human hands, but need to be met with armor of, of either gardens or war. It's, it's, it's interesting. The language is like wood and, and iron, and it could be either Because you use both for either, either fighting a battle or fighting a garden. But here, uh, this new king whom God will send, he will come in and he will make sure that all of these thorns are utterly consumed with fire. That's their end. Now that's interesting, isn't it? You have two lights. One is the light of the sun that gives life. And the other is this burning fire that consumes those who are not trusting and living for God. Of course, as this king goes, that God is speaking of through God's king, so goes the people. And David looks to a greater Messiah than himself, Jesus, who is the Christ. Now, now here's something interesting about this text. If you were to, to go and look it up, you'll find that uh, many have looked at this text, this, these verses, as messianic, as verses that are preparing the way for the greater Messiah that was to come. So Martin Luther writes a a great deal on this specific chapter. And and when he does, he says that this is speaking of the coming Messiah. Uh, This chapter should be put right alongside Genesis 3.15, where God promised Adam a, a seed that would come after him that would bring salvation from all of the works of Satan. 
Uh, If you read in the Greek version of this text, you'll find that it it refers to it as messianic. If you look at uh, the Targum of Jonathan, which was kind of an exposition that was read in synagogues, it speaks of this as a messianic text. I think we're pretty safe saying this is a text that is looking to and for Jesus. And so as we think about the reality of this, I want to close with quick three takeaways. There's so many takeaways that you could take from from this, but I want to give you three quick ones as you go home. First, your works and your position will never be so great that you do not need the grace that only comes through Jesus Christ. King Jesus is who you need. Think about this. King David, he was the hero that Israel loved to sing about. He was the the model of what it looked like to be a king and against which every other king would be judged. And this king, with his dying words, says you need something more. You need a greater Messiah than me. Jacob told you, Balaam told you, I'm telling you, you need a greater Messiah than myself. You need a greater light than the light that I have. See, David needed a greater light, and that light is Jesus Christ. John 8, 12, Jesus says this. He says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You want to spring up in life? You need Jesus. On your last day, what matters when you come to give an account to Jesus is whether you put your faith in God's Son who lived a perfect life that you didn't, who died on the cross where you should have and was raised from the dead in a way that nobody ever has to declare that all who put their faith in Him will be saved, will become children of God and have a future and a hope that is what? Incredibly bright. So put your faith in the Messiah who came to save broken people and give them new life. If you haven't done it, don't go another day. You're not promised another day. Put your faith in Christ today. And tell somebody, tell one of us. Second, Christians, this is how we read the Bible, with an eye towards Christ. This is how we read all the Bible. We are looking for Christ. We hear, we preach expositionally. That means that we typically go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through whole sections of the Bible. And when we're doing that, we are doing that because we believe that the greatest thing that every human soul needs is actually to hear from the Word of God. We want to expose God's words to you. And as we read the Scriptures, what we find is is that the Bible tells us that if we are really exposing the point of the Bible, the point of the Bible isn't you, it's Jesus. Now, it's the most important message you'll ever hear for you. But it's not about you, it's about Christ. And so when we preach week in and week out, we are always looking for how it prepares us to see the glories and majesties of Christ. It's kind of like the popular rom-com quote. I don't know if you like rom-coms. I do. I'm humble enough to admit that before you. I like it when relationships work out and when people are happy. But there's this quote that you'll often hear, something to this effect. It's you. It's always been you. And I'm thinking that throughout the whole Bible. It's Christ. It's always been Christ. And if you think that that's a little too romantic or cheesy, well, let me tell you that, that Peter, who is a, a zealot and wasn't scared to, you know, swing a sword, he said something very similar in his own words. 
You remember Peter explained prophecy in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Prophecies like David's. And this is what he says. Concerning this salvation, he's been talking about salvation. He says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, right? So prophets from the Old Testament. Now he's talking to a mostly Gentile audience. And he's saying, they were actually prophesying for your benefit. These Old Testament texts, they were for you. Catch this, what he says. They were searching and inquiring carefully. Okay, what were they looking for? They were inquiring what person or time? The Spirit of Christ in them. Stop. Old Testament prophets, the Spirit of Christ in them is preparing them. What for? He was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, these prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by what? The Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look into. Some of you are like, man, I'm having trouble not checking my email right now. Angels spellbound over the things that we are looking at in the Word of God. And what does it say about the Word of God? The Word of God that came through these Old Testament prophets? It is from the what? The Holy Spirit? Yes. The Spirit of Christ. So not only is it you, it's always been you. Christ has been preparing us for himself through the Word. See, Christ is speaking through David. The greater Christ is speaking through the lesser Christ about the greater Christ that is to come. In true spirituality, it always exalts and sings of Jesus. See, when our hearts don't sing of Jesus, we need to consider our lives. Are we following Christ? Are we obeying Jesus? Is there disobedience that is making our hearts heavy before God? Is there a way that we have stopped trusting Jesus so that we can't get excited about singing to Christ? Are we praying dependently for his help? Are we trying to just muster it on our own? Are we sick and need special healing mercies from the Lord? Are we with the people that Jesus loves in a local church? Are we trying to love Jesus without loving his body? Do we know that we need to sing? See, we need Jesus and his people. And if we can't be here, we ought to be desperate for what Jesus loves. But third, if we have Christ, we can have hope in the face of death. It's only this kind of hope in this Christ that causes us to be able to look at death and say, where is your sting now? I'm not fearful of you anymore. I'm looking forward to more Jesus. See, we have a new and better covenant. The new covenant that comes in Christ. It is the everlasting of everlasting covenants. If it's possible to be more everlasting, this is it. It is in Christ who defeated sin, death, and the devil to draw broken people like you and me to God. See, our future has begun if we are in Christ. It is already, the light is already dawning in our very hearts, according to the words of Scripture. Death has been swallowed up. Eternity awaits as we eagerly await the return of Jesus. And then faith becomes sight. The things that we dream about are real. And our inheritance it arrives in full. I'm, I'm tired of the little things that are so generous from God that come to us. And I can't imagine what the inheritance looks like when it's paid in full. Do you dream about that? A bad day will make you dream about that. And all of creation will be renewed 
with our bodies. All because God will keep his promises. Let's pray.